You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our study of the end times with a series we are calling What Lies Ahead. With this week's message, here's education pastor Nolan Smith. Well, about 10 years ago, before I got married, my my parents and my sister and I decided to go on a trip to Arizona. We were going to go spend Christmas with some family that lives out there in Phoenix. And so we make our way out to Phoenix. And then my sister and I decide we want, along with our two cousins who are our age, we want to plan this little excursion while we're there to go and, and drive up through northern Arizona, go do some sightseeing and, and get up to a hotel one night. And then the next morning, wake up real early and get over to the Grand Canyon and watch the sunrise over the Grand Canyon. And so that's what we did. And I remember that morning we were walking out to the, this overlook where everyone has, was starting to gather. They had the same idea to go watch the sunrise over the Grand Canyon. And so we're walking out there and it's before dawn. And so the sun, the, uh, the sun is not up yet. The sky is starting to turn this really deep blue. And, and we are looking out over the, the canyon, and you can't quite see it just yet. You can start to make out what's in front of you, but you can't quite see it just yet. Now, for me, this was my second of three total trips that I've been on to the Grand Canyon. I've been once since then, and prior to that, we had, we'd gone as a family when I was about six or seven years old. So, going out there, I have this picture in my mind, and this picture has been painted by three things. It's been painted by this faint childhood memory that I have in my mind, by what I've heard other people say. You know, people go to the Grand Canyon and they tell you, oh, this is what it's like. you you got to see it. it. It looks like this. And they'll describe it to you, as I'm about to. And, and then I, I've seen, you know, pictures on, on uh, or, or, or shows, movies, things like that on a screen. I'd seen, I'd seen it before. And so those are the things that go into my mind to formulate this picture that I'm seeing. And then I'll never forget when the sun began to rise over that eastern horizon and, and it hits the walls of the canyon to the west, and it just illuminates these reds and oranges and yellows, and it's just, I mean, it's almost too bright to even look at. And it hits me just how big this thing is. I mean, they call it the Grand Canyon for a reason, you know? It's huge, and you can't even grasp how big it is. You can't really fathom how far away the other side of it is. It it almost looks fake, and it's just Incredible, And there's no description that anyone can give you, no picture you can look at, no faint memory that will accurately depict what you're going to see in real life. If you've never been, you, you got to go. I love going and, and seeing the Grand Canyon. It really is indescribable. But the point is this. The picture I had in my mind, no matter how accurate I thought it might be, it just could not do justice to the real thing. I couldn't really comprehend what I was going to see. And before we get into the text that we're going to study today, there's a, there's a story in Scripture that I want us to quickly look at. It's a story from the Gospel of Luke. And in chapter 18 of Luke, we get this account of Jesus talking to the disciples. It says, In taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will... Kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Now, up to this point, I think it's worth mentioning that probably most of us in this room, in fact, probably most of us in our society, are pretty familiar with the events that Jesus is describing here, right? You don't even have to necessarily be a Christian and believe that this is true in order to know what Jesus is referring to. That, yeah, of course, he's talking about that time when he was crucified, he was tortured, crucified, killed, and then. 
then rose again from the dead, right? That's, that's what he's talking about, okay? And so we all take for granted that we understand exactly what Jesus is talking about. But how did the disciples understand this? Well, they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And so here, Jesus, in the flesh, right in front of them, who they have watched perform miracles, they've lived alongside Jesus, here he is telling them, hey, this is what's about to happen. And they're like, what? I don't get it. And we, on this side of those events, look back and we're like, how do you, how do you not get it? It's, I mean, he said it, that's, I mean, I don't think you could describe it any more clearly than what, what happened. I mean, that's it right there. So disciples, like, what do you, what, why are the dots not connecting? But, but I think we have to recognize that this happened to the disciples. They were told about these events that would happen. They were told explicitly by Jesus, hey, here's what's going to happen. And they didn't get it. And, and we're going to look at an account in the book of Revelation where, where the apostle John is told some things. John is told some things. And in fact, if you want to go ahead and start turning to Revelation 4, that's where we'll be. But, but John in Revelation is, is given a vision. And Jesus tells him some things, says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And then John actually sees them in front of him. And there's a moment where Jesus describes the events and John gets a picture in his head of what it's going to look like. And then what he actually sees in the vision doesn't quite match what's in his head. And I say all of this to point out the fact that if there were disciples, apostles, who were there with Jesus, who Jesus physically appeared to and said these things and revealed these things to, and they couldn't comprehend it, they couldn't wrap their minds around, they couldn't get an accurate picture in their heads, then I think we need to approach the text with the humility to say, hey, we might not get it either. And we're going to read about some future events in the scriptures today. And I think it's worth noting that there were people who Jesus said this audibly to, and they were like, I don't, I can't, I can't picture it. So as we read today, I think we need to recognize that how we see these things in our minds, how we conceptualize what we're going to read today, probably not an accurate picture. And that's okay, because there's still going to be value in what we read. And, and so what we're going to look at quickly is a review of where we've been. So on our timeline, we started back at the beginning of this series on the end times with the rapture, which was that event when God would, Jesus would take believers home to be with him. And then after that would be this judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, where believers would stand before the judgment of Jesus. And, and it wouldn't be a, a judgment where their fate, whether they go to heaven or hell, is decided. No, that's already been taken care of. This is a judgment about how they lived their lives. How, did, how have believers lived and what reward will they receive in proportion to that? There was also the great white throne judgment. That's where everyone else will stand and give account for what did they do with Jesus. Did they trust in him or not? But parallel to these events are some other things. These are happening elsewhere, but here on earth, what's happening during this timeline? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to take a very high-level approach to some of these events. We're going to start with the tribulation. And i got to tell you, we are just not going to have time for a lot of detail. Okay? So this is going to be an overview of these events. But we're going to start with the tribulation, which is this time period after the rapture. And, and if these, these details aren't enough for you, the, the, the way that we're going to view this isn't enough detail for you. And you go, man, I, this stuff's really interesting. I want more detail. I want more discussion on this. I have good news for you. Because this fall, coming up in September, you'll hear more about this in the coming weeks. But we have Wednesday night classes that will be starting. And one of the classes, one of those Wednesday night tracks, will be a study of eschatology, which is just our big fancy word for end times. It's a word you can say and makes you sound smart. And so... 
Gary Rowe is going to lead this, this study in eschatology, and you can go to that class. There will be a lot more detail and discussion on this topic, and I highly recommend it if that's something that you're interested in. But we're going to look at the tribulation, and then we're going to move on to this millennium, or the millennial kingdom, as it's called. And then after that, we're going to look at what's called the eternal state, how things will be in eternity after all of this. So we're going to look at those three periods of time. Like I said, we're going to begin with the tribulation. So the tribulation is covered in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. If you want to go read that passage, you can. Um, we're, going to, we're going to focus more on what's revealed in Revelation chapters 4 through 18. Now that's a lot of chapters. We're not going to read all those. We don't have time. So we're going to do an overview of those chapters and so in Daniel 9 and Revelations, uh, Revelation 4 through 18, uh, they detail extensively this period of time known as the Great Tribulation. And, and like many aspects of our eschatological timeline, that's a cool word to say, right? It sounds smart. So uh, like many elements of our eschatological timeline, there is a debate within Christianity, within the body of believers over how and when these events happened. There's debate. There's not full agreement in the church on how these events unfold. And I want to say that because there are genuine brothers and sisters in the church who disagree with our view on these things, and that's okay. But we're going to look at how we believe these things are described and how they unfold. Now, the tribulation is a period of seven years, and it begins sometime after the rapture. So the rapture, as we talked about, was it's imminent. It's something that could happen at any moment. There's nothing else that needs to happen before the rapture happens. But there are some things that will have to line up before the tribulation happens uh, sometime after the rapture. We see that in the Daniel passage. And this period of time, the seven years, is going to be marked by destruction, by pain, by fear and suffering. It's going to be really bad. In Revelation, uh, again, these, these chapters 4 through 18, the apostle John receives this vision from Jesus. It's a vision in which he sees a lot of really crazy things. These judgments that are bringing this chaos and this violence into the world. Among them, one of the things he sees is he sees Jesus, a vision of Jesus. And what he expects to see is this king, uh, this, this lion-like king, Jesus. And when he looks at the vision and sees Jesus, what he actually sees is this slain lamb. That's how Jesus appears. And then he sees four horsemen. They're known to us as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They bring things like war and famine and death to the earth. He sees these terrible worldwide plagues. They're a lot like the plagues over in the Exodus story. And similar to the story in Exodus where God sent these plagues to Egypt to tell, uh, to tell Pharaoh, hey, I want you to release my people from slavery. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And, and similarly, in the tribulation, the people of the world, many of them will see these plagues and they will harden their hearts. They will not repent. John sees a vision of this huge cosmic battle between Satan and his armies. They're fighting against the angels in heaven. And at one point, John sees a vision of an angel who, who flies out over the whole earth and proclaims the gospel message to everyone. It is this sort of final call. Hey, repent and believe in Jesus. It is this opportunity to hear the gospel for everyone in the whole world to hear the gospel because what comes next and only after that, Jesus appears with this sickle 
to come and reap the harvest of the earth, to separate the believers who have now trusted in that gospel message from those who have not. And so uh, there is this gospel message, this opportunity to, to, again, believe in Jesus, Jesus coming to reap the harvest. And then at the end of all of this, John sees this huge battle, the battle of Armageddon. It's the battle where Jesus defeats the armies of Satan. It is a wild ride. If you were to read that, go and read that by yourself, uh, read through it. it it's, it's pretty crazy. And we know that at least some of the imagery is very much symbolic. John tells us as much. But ultimately, we just we can't fully grasp what is being described or how it's going to unfold. And we have to humbly acknowledge that. That, that what we see in this text is not going to be accurate in our minds to how it's actually going to unfold. But it's, it's still showing us these, these hugely significant events, just not with full clarity. And so as an overview, we look at the tribulation and we say, okay, so when's it going to happen? When it happens is after the rapture. Not necessarily right after, but sometime after the rapture. And then who's present? Because we read all this stuff. We, we hear about how terrible it's going to be. And you might be thinking... I don't want to be there for that. And I have good news. You won't be because only unbelievers will be there. So if you have trusted in Christ, you won't be there. Okay? What's, the people that are left after the rapture, unbelievers, they're the ones that will still be here to endure this. And what happens during that time? Well, what happens, and I'm going to, as I read these descriptions, these are actually, you can find these descriptions of these, these time periods on our church website under our doctrinal statements of what we believe uh, but what happens during this time is the seven-year period under the dominion of the Antichrist, who we didn't even get into the Antichrist here, is characterized by divine judgments. So what happens is people are going to act in accordance with the realization that the end is near. It's not going to be like, ah, I, I mean, I don't know, I wonder, it, it, the end might be, might be getting close. No, people are going to know and they're going to act accordingly. They're going to act like they see it and, and the end is near. And in fact, in Revelation 9, verse 6, it actually tells us that people will seek death rather than preserve life. It's going to be really bad. But what's the purpose for it? Why is God going to allow this or cause this stuff to happen? And I want to notice that there's themes that we see in the tribulation, in the description. There's a theme in John's vision of God's judgment there's the theme of the hard-heartedness of the people who are experiencing it. And there's Jesus as the lamb who was slain for his enemies in order to reconcile them, in order to bring them into life, to, to reconcile them to their creator. And then consider that this letter was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor at that time. That when John received this vision and recorded all this, he sent it to these seven churches who were experiencing suffering. Some of their suffering was brought on by their own sin and their own temptation. Some of it was actual persecution. But they were suffering. And so John offers this as, as a means of, of giving them hope for these suffering Christians. The hope of God's coming judgment of sin and evil. His cosmic victory over the powers of the enemy. And the vindication of the suffering of all these believers. And so we as Christians, as believers, we're meant to take comfort in the power displayed here in this story. And so the purpose of this is, number one, it's the purification of Israel. 
And, and we didn't get into that today, but we did see this in Malachi, our previous series in Malachi, chapter 3. There was a prophecy that, that Messiah was going to come and he was going to refine Israel like a fire. And so he's going to come to refine Israel and to put Israel, restore them back to the way that he had called them to be in the very beginning. And, and so he's going to refine and purify Israel. We also see that this will be the end of the current rebellion against God that's mentioned over in Daniel. That the current state of rebellion, how, it, how it's happening right now, that this tribulation is going to bring an end to that. And then it's going to inaugurate a new society, which we'll see here in just a second. It's going to inaugurate a new society marked by righteousness. And then one other note that I think is really important for us to catch in this is that we still see God's heart. There's this opportunity for unbelievers to repent and believe. We saw that illustrated in the story of that angel flying over the world and and sending out this gospel message, proclaiming it to the whole earth because God wants everyone to hear it. Because his desire, as he says in 2 Peter 3, 9, is that all men and women would come to hear the gospel, trust in that, and be saved. That's his desire. and So he makes another opportunity for that. But we recognize here that the tribulation is not, it's not needless or futile suffering. It's not meant to inflict pain on innocent people. It's God's judgment against sin, and it's directed at Satan and those who pledge their allegiance to him. These aren't random innocent people who never had a chance to hear the gospel. They are those who look to God and look to Satan, and they chose to be on the side of evil. But as I said, this is going to lead us into the next phase, which is this millennial kingdom. And so you can find the, the millennial kingdom described in Isaiah 11. You're welcome to turn to Isaiah 11, but keep your thumb over in Revelation if you do. And we're not going to read the entire passage of Isaiah 11. It's verses 1 through 16. Again, if you want to read that on your own, you can do so. We're just going to look at a few select verses that describe this millennial kingdom. And I want you to hear in these verses the contrast between what we just talked about over in the tribulation and all the pain and the suffering and what's described here in Isaiah chapter 11. In verse 6 of Isaiah 11, we see this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. We skip to verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a big difference between what we saw in the tribulation. There is a peace that exists in this millennial kingdom. It is a peace that is so significant that as it it is described that a child could stick his hand in the den of a venomous snake and not get, get bitten. That is the extent of this peace. And what is it that brings about the peace? Well, in verse 1 of this chapter, we actually see that it describes a root from the, the shoot of Jesse. And it's, it's a reference uh, back to the prophecy to King David. When David sat on the throne, God gave David a prophecy that said, Hey, from your lineage, I will raise up this Messiah, a king who will be the greatest king ever. He's going to sit on your throne and he's going to rule the whole world. And he's going to rule perfectly. And that king is going to be Jesus. The reason for the peace in this millennial kingdom is because Jesus is sitting on his throne. And he is ruling over the entire world with this perfect reign. 
we also see that, that it's not only about peace, but there will be this restoration of Israel. He's going to put Israel back into the promised land once and for all. God's going to deliver on his promises to Israel. And then over back in Revelation in chapter 20, that's where we see uh, John describe this millennial kingdom. In Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So the binding of Satan here, what this means is that while Jesus is reigning on his throne, that Satan and his influence aren't present. He is not there to influence the world as Jesus sits on his throne. But it's not a perfect creation, as we'll see. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we see now the vindication of the martyrs and the believers. But we also see that believers get to rule in the millennial kingdom with Jesus. But it's not the final end. As we saw alluded to in verse 3, there would be more after this. Sin has not actually been fully destroyed once and for all. Jesus is reigning, but the creation is still fallen. There will be sin still that exists. There will be those who still resist Jesus' kingship. And that ultimate of defeat of Satan and his armies comes next. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we see that release of Satan that was alluded to, which seems kind of weird. You're going to lock Satan up and then release him. But we see that there will still be these people who insist on rebellion, on pledging their allegiance to evil and selfishness rather than to God. And then we see God bringing this final justice to all who are still in rebellion at that point. And it raises a question. I think, I think when I read this, at least, I see this and I think, well, okay, God's just straight up saying this is what I'm going to do. He's, he's given away the game plan. This is what I'm going to do. And, and I, I would think, well, you know what? If you're just going to say it like that, isn't Satan going to like, know your plan now? And now he's going to like, alter his moves? And, and isn't that going to kind of throw things off? And I actually don't think that's the case. And I'm, actually, I'm reminded of a story that I once heard about Larry Bird. So I don't, if, if you've ever heard of Larry Bird, he's like a really old basketball player. And, uh, and he played basketball in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, uh, and, and he was phenomenal. He was an incredible basketball player. He was so good that there are these stories about, uh, sorry, some of you are still hung up that I called Larry Bird old. But, it, I mean, he is, like, really. And, um, and, and so, so Larry was so good. He probably still is this good, right? I mean, he beat me. But Larry was so good in his day that he, he could tell his opponents when they were at one end of the court, he'd be like, hey, when we go back down there, 
this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm gonna go to this spot. I'm going to get the ball. I'm going to fake this way. Then I'm going to go this way. I'm going to shoot it over you, and you just, you're just not going to be able to stop me. And I, you know, I, I've heard these stories from the guys that, that tell them, and you're like, man, that's demoralizing. And, and you think about what these guys, these guys are you know, among the like two or 300 best basketball players in the world themselves. And there's probably a lot of pride involved in that, right? They're hearing that, and they're like, oh, no, you're not. I am not going to let you do that. And so they give it their all. They're like, we're going to go back down the court, and if you're going to do what you say you're going to do, I'm going to stop you, okay? So they go back down the court, and then Larry goes to this spot. He calls the ball, gets the ball, fakes one way, turns the other way, shoots it over them, and, and scores. Like, they knew what he was going to do, and they could not stop him. And it just showed that's how good he is. Like, that's how good Larry was. And I, I got to be honest, I, I kind of think that's how God is playing this thing. I think what he's doing is he's saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Now, the enemy's going to try and stop me. He's going to give it his best shot. To some extent, he knows what I'm doing because I'm saying it right now. And, and then he's going he's gonna to give it everything he has and it just, it won't be enough. I'm that good. I will accomplish this plan. And so when it comes to the millennial kingdom, our overview, when will it happen? Well, it'll happen after the tribulation. And who's going to be present? Well, we see that the believers are going to be there ruling and reigning, but there's going to be remaining unbelievers as well. Both will be present. And then what happens at this time, what we see is Christ will personally reign on earth over this 1,000-year period of peace and righteousness at the end of the millennium. Satan will rebel, again be defeated, and cast into the lake of fire for eternity. So there's a lot going on in this millennial kingdom. And so what's the purpose? Why have this 1,000 this years where you bind up Satan only to release him later? What's the point of this 1,000-year period? Well, one thing that, that we briefly mentioned is that it is going to fulfill the, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to the Israelites. It's going it's to finish what God said he would do for the Israelites. He's going to fulfill those promises. But something else that I think he, he's going to do with this is he's going to display his good governance. You see, I, I mentioned before, this is not a perfect redeemed creation at this point. It is still a fallen, broken creation over which Christ is going to reign and rule. And there is a, a, a pastor who has a YouTube channel full of a ton of great videos. They're topical. He's got lots of them. I highly recommend it. His name is Mike Winger. And if you've never heard of him, go watch some of his YouTube videos. Um, and, and he talks about all kinds of things. But I'm going to paraphrase something that he said about the millennial kingdom here. Basically, he said, I think that what's going to happen is Jesus is, is demonstrating something. You, you think about throughout human history, we have seen every form of human government tried and, and at some level it fails. And so Jesus is going to step on the throne and he's going to say, look, this is what it looks like when I rule. And I'm going to show you compared to all the ways that the human governments have tried to do this, this is what it really should look like. This is how I rule. And... Within that, we recognize that there is still sin in creation. And what we, what we learn through that is, is that this shows that human depravity, still, it still exists. Rebellion still exists. These things are not circumstantial. In other words, we can't sit here and say, well, yeah, sure, the only reason I sinned is because I was in these circumstances that were just really hard. You know? or, or Satan is just such a good trickster that he convinced me to do this, and so that's why I did it, Right? This is a, a time when Jesus is going to show, look, Satan is out of the picture. And sin, that exists within the human heart. And prior to the redemption, the remaking of all creation, the glorification of everyone, prior to that, there's still sin in the world. And it, it exists in the hearts of human beings. And then finally, again, like, like before, 
we see that there's yet another opportunity. This is God continuing to provide this opportunity to show this is what my good governance looks like. I'm trustworthy. You should trust in me, giving the opportunity for those unbelievers to trust in in him. And then this is going to take us into the eternal state. We call it the eternal state. It's it's when we see the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. It's in Revelation 21, and and this, this is my absolute favorite passage of Scripture. And a lot of what we have read this morning is is confusing, it's, it's obscure, but I actually, I don't think this part is. I think it's pretty clear, and I want to show you why I love it so much. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I think... That from the, the very beginning of human history, when, when we were in the garden and, and humans committed original sin, it created not only this, this destruction in the hearts of human beings, but in creation itself. And ever since then, through now and into that tribulation that we read and all that destruction that's happening in the world, I think what, what ultimately we see is that earth will have suffered the full extent of the consequences of sin. And it'll be time for God to remake it. And there will be a new Jerusalem, a new home for God's people, which he has prepared as a bridegroom for his bride. And if you recall the words of Jesus when he said, I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. He was talking about this reference to the Hebrew wedding. And in a Hebrew wedding, what would happen was the bride's family and the groom's family would come together. They would make arrangements for this marriage. And then they would go their separate ways. Now, the, the groom would go back to his father's house where he would build a dwelling place, a home, onto his father's house for he and his bride. Some of you are like, that doesn't sound that great. But that's what they would do, is they would build their house onto the father's house, and then he'd go back for his bride. And he'd go back at a time when she didn't necessarily know when it would be. He'd go and he'd get her, and he would bring her home. And that's what Jesus does for the church. He has gone before us to prepare a place in his father's house, and he's going to come back, and he's going to take us home. And so he's been preparing that place this whole time for us. How great is it going to be? It actually reminds me of of something that happens in our house now about four times a year. Now that we have four kids. Every time one of our kids has a birthday, the night before, I see my wife go into this, this different gear. And she starts decorating our house. As soon as the kids go to bed, she starts decorating. She starts hanging these, these banners and, and has me blow up these balloons, which is really fun. And, and so we blow up all these balloons and hang these signs and decorations and everything. And then I think my wife just lives for that moment the next morning when the kids wake up and they come out from the bedrooms and they see the house decorated for them for their birthday and their faces just light up. They know somebody did this for me. My mom and dad love me so much. They did this for me. That's what Jesus is doing for us. But the best part of all this is that God's dwelling place is once again with man. 
Because in the garden, it says that's where God's dwelling place was originally with man. That, that God's dwelling place, heaven, and man's dwelling place, earth, overlapped in this place called the garden. And we'll talk more about that next week. But in the garden, we saw God's dwelling place and man's dwelling place together. And then thanks to sin, that fundamentally changed. It broke that relationship. And the way that God dwelled with man at that time changed. His dwelling place was no longer with man. Now, it wouldn't be accurate to say that God no longer is with us. That wouldn't be accurate. He is. He, he has found ways throughout human history to still be with us. In fact, when Jesus came, he was called Emmanuel because that meant God with us. We as believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. God is with us. But there is a unique way in which God dwelled with human beings in the garden that he is not dwelling now and will not again until this moment when everything is restored and his dwelling place will once again be with us. This perfect fellowship between God and his people. And what that means is that sin and suffering are no more. He is going to wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Those things will be gone. He will do away with them for good and we'll be in paradise. And I can't wait. So when will it happen? The eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, after everything else. After everything else, this is what is coming. And who will be present? It'll be believers. Those who have trusted in Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, first of all, I am thrilled that you're here with us today. But this is the invitation before you. This is what Jesus is inviting you into. That all you have to do is, is say that you, you recognize Jesus on the cross did that for you. That he went to the cross, took on your sin, and offered the exchange of his righteousness. You could have his righteousness, give him your sin. You could stand before the Father, clean, pure, unstained by sin, so that you could enter into this reality. That three days after he was crucified, Jesus rose from the grave, conquered death, and promised us eternal life with him. This is the invitation to enter into eternity with him forever. And what's going to happen during this time? Well, believers will eternally dwell in fellowship with God in this new creation. And I don't know about you, but I've had some misconceptions about heaven in my lifetime. As a kid, I think a lot of us may have had this misconception. I, I remember thinking, look, if heaven is just going to be like sitting on a cloud next to a little baby angel playing a harp, I want to do that forever, okay? Like that's uh, maybe, maybe for a little while, but not forever, right? And that's not really what it's going to be like. I've had misconceptions. I've had pictures in my mind that are not accurate to the reality of what it will be like. No, we're going to live in the earth, but new and better. In fact, it's going to be so good that, that we talk about when, when you go to some place like the Grand Canyon and you have a picture in your mind of what it's going to look like and then you actually see it and the real thing is so much better. Well, in the new creation, what we see right now, you think of the most beautiful place you've ever been, the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, or anywhere else that you think is just the most beautiful place on earth, that's the cheap imitation to the new earth. It'll be so much better. And that's where we will live forever with God and with all of our brothers and sisters, with no sin or suffering anymore. 
So what's the purpose of this new heaven and new creation? It's the complete restoration of all things. For God to make all things new, to bring his plan to completion. And then it's the enjoyment. It's the enjoyment of being there in perfect fellowship with God and with fellow believers. And all those who have gone before us in death, we will be reunited and live together forever. So whatever conceptions that you or I have of these passages, it's not going to be completely accurate. And when we're on the other side, we're standing in eternity and we look back in hindsight at how all these things unfolded. Maybe we'll feel a little bit like the disciples who after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, we're like, oh, that's what he meant. Makes sense now. Maybe we'll feel like that. But we, we just can't fully understand right now. But just because we can't fully understand or envision these events, it doesn't mean they're not important. God gave them to us in his scriptures for a reason. We shouldn't read these and go, oh, that's, that's nice. I'll never know what it looks like, so let's just move on. I think there's value in understanding why does God tell us these things? Well, they reveal some things about God's character. First, they tell us that God finishes what he starts. That in the beginning, when creation was broken by sin, God didn't just throw up his hands and say, well, I tried. Oh, well, no, God's going to finish what he started. He's going to bring all of this to a completion. Second is God continues to draw as many people to himself as possible. God is patient. He is trying to to call out to everyone and say, "I, I want you to believe in the gospel. I want you to enter into this new reality, this relationship and everlasting life. That's his desire. We see that God destroys sin and all its effects once and for all. Every one of us has felt the pain of the effects of sin the sting of death, and we know it hurts. And we cry out to God, God, when are you going to fix this? And God says, I will. It's coming. I'm patient. I'm more patient than, than, than we can be. God's patient, but he's going to finish this. He's going to destroy sin and death once and for all because ultimately God rescues and redeems his people. He's going to draw us into an eternity with him where all things will be new, And we'll get to be there with him forever. And so we, as believers, we live with this confident expectation, this hope, as Blake talked about earlier. A hope that God will finish what he started and redeem his creation once and for all. This morning, I want to leave you with a quote. It's it's probably my favorite quote from my favorite book, uh, or at least my favorite book series. It's the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And after the events of that book that sort of parallel our end times timeline, after those events, we read this passage. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com. 
or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.